Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers, and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Bjornstadir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Viren Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet Sophia Sinclair. Born and raised in Montego Bay, Jamaica, Sinclair received her MFA in poetry at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville and is currently a PhD candidate in literature and creative writing at the University of Southern California. Her poems have appeared in Poetry Magazine, Granta, The Nation, Boston Review, Kenyon Review, and Oxford American, among many others, and she's a 2016 recipient of the Whiting Writers Award, 
Her other honors include a Pushcart Prize, a Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation, and fellowships from Yaddo, the Breadloaf's Writers Conference, and the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. Sophia Sinclair is here today to talk about her debut collection of poetry, Cannibal, a book that has garnered a remarkable amount of attention and praise. Winner of the Prairie Schooner Book Prize in Poetry, the Addison M. Metcalf Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the OCM Bocas Prize for Caribbean Poetry, and the 2017 Phyllis Wheatley Book Award in Poetry. Cannibal was also named a notable book of the year by the American Library Association, BuzzFeed, Poets and Writers, and The New Yorker. Booklist in its starred review says, Reading and rereading Sinclair is an urgently necessary, absolutely unparalleled experience. Poet Major Jackson adds that here is a poetry that richly interrogates power and history while also eloquently and furtively asserting the possibilities of nature, desire, and the body as ceremonial and spiritual sources of resistance and affirmation. Welcome to Between the Covers, Sophia Sinclair. Thanks for having me. So let's begin with the title and the epigraph to the book that describes its origins. This seems to be a, a, a crucial key to understanding your project, or at least one crucial key to understanding your project. So w what is Cannibal? Um, well, you know, I, I say at the beginning of the book in the epigraph, I talk about the etymology of the word cannibal and how it's connected to being a Caribbean person. So um, the word cannibal is the English variant of the Spanish word cannibal, which comes from the word caribal. Um, which is a reference to the native Carib people whom Columbus thought ate human flesh and from whom the word Caribbean originates. So um, the word Caribbean is linked to this idea of being cannibal, being savage, being other, being monstrous. And you, and you say by virtue of being Caribbean, all West Indian people are already in a linguistic sense. Born savage. Born savage. So um, how do you take that and use that as a key towards um, the explorations you make in, in the collection as a whole? Um, well, I think a lot about um, this idea of... Um, being seen as monstrous and the black body as monstrous and um, Caribbean people being seen as wild um, and thinking about how those ideas um, reframe how uh, the black body is seen throughout history and how that's connected to how black people are then treated in modern times, but then also thinking about the idea of savagery and is there any power in that, mm. right? Mm -hmm. If I tap into this idea, if I claim this impolite body as mine, where do I go from there? Mm. And, and as we move into part one of Cannibal, we get two more epigraphs that are on the same page, but in a way feel like they're sitting in a little bit in opposition to each other. One is Shakespeare's uh, The Tempest, spoken by Caliban, and the second is by the Caribbean poet Kamau Brathwaite. Um, I'm hoping we could start with the first one, and sure. maybe if you just read it for us before I ask my question. So this is actually my one of my favorite passages of Caliban's From the Tempest. 
be not afeard, the isle is full of noises, sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears, and sometime voices. And then the Brathwaite quote is, the hurricane does not roar in pentametas. So for people who might need a refresher on yeah. The Tempest, can you orient us to Caliban? Sure. So The Tempest is a play about um, a European duke or something that has been um, exiled from his country, I think it's Naples, and he is then shipwrecked on an island. Um, and so that's where the tempest comes from, the storm that shipwrecks him. Um, or the tempest could be something more inwards. But he's he shipwrecked on this island, and he comes across um, a witch who lives there. Her name is Sycorax. And he, she teaches him magic, and then he banishes her, and her son is Caliban. And so this, this Lord Prospero banishes the witch who taught him magic and takes her son Caliban as his slave. Hmm. Um, and so Prospero and his daughter are living on this island until another shipwreck of passengers come. And Caliban is... is when he's described, isn't entirely described as human. No, he's not. So we have a character who speaks, you know, in lyric, speaks beautifully about his selfhood and what he's lost, but he's described as a monster, fish-headed monster, um, a fool, and the stage directions just say Prospero's slave or something mm. to that effect. And Prospero takes it upon himself it from his perspective as a mm -hmm. sort of benevolent civilizing the, act right. to, to teach him to speak the Queen's English. Yes. Um, and there's even a scene where both Prospero and Miranda confront Caliban and they're like, um, you know, we taught you language. Basically, you know, you should be grateful. And, you know, to which Caliban retorts, um, you taught me language and my profit on it is I know how to curse. Um, and I always like that line because it's, Caliban sort of saying, well, how can I use your language against you? Yeah, which is kind of what you were saying yes. was the enterprise for you with Cannibal. Yes. So you said before, at, at a very young age, I identified with Caliban as a representative of the linguistic and psychological exile of the Caribbean self, to be forced to speak in the language of the colonist, the language of the oppressor, while also carrying within us the storm of Jamaican patois, we live under a constant hurricane of our doubleness. In many ways, we will always be a stranger to ourselves. As Walcott says, our bodies move in one language and think in another. And this quote um, resonates with the second epigraph that you've read by Brathwaite. When you say we live under a constant hurricane of our doubleness, he says, in confrontation to Shakespeare, the hurricane does not roar in pentameters. Yes. Um, Cannibal enters a, a long conversation with um, uh, other Caribbean poets who are engaged with the rewriting of The Tempest. Can, can you talk about the predecessors uh, that have engaged with The Tempest as Caribbean uh, writers and how this enters that conversation? Sure. So Brathwaite himself um, does his own decolonization of The Tempest where he 
um, had a book called Sikorax, or he invented a language called Sikorax, which is, of course, referencing Caliban's mother, the witch who taught Prospero his magic. Um, and, you know, he goes about using broken syntax and dialect um, as a way of uh, fathering his own kind of poetic language. Um, and that is always an important text to me to think about. Um, even if I go about it differently, I appreciate what Brathwaite is doing um, with breaking the language to put it back together, constructing it in our own our own rhythms and meter and music, mm. um, which is what he means when he you know when he talks about the hurricane and rowing and pentameters. Um, which is basically the pentameter itself is a part of English prosody, and it it is meant to reflect the natural environment of the British Isles of England, of the snow falling. But if you're in the Caribbean, that's not the music you hear. That's not the landscape you see, right? It's rich, it's fertile, it's the tropics. Everything is growing into everything else. It's impolite. And so um, a part of my poetic project is finding some way to reflect that Jamaican and Caribbean landscape on the page in imagery, in music and mm. metaphor. Um, and then, of course, you also have Césaire, um, who uh, had a, his own version of The Tempest called Un Tempet, and he is writing from, he's rewriting the play from the point of view of Caliban himself. Um, and so the, the final epigraph uh, for the fifth section of the book is referencing um, Césaire's play of sort of giving voice back to Caliban um, and him sort of unnaming himself, stripping the name given to him by Shakespeare and by Prospero and taking the name X. And that name Caliban is an anagram for... For cannibal. For cannibal also. Yes, could you read us the poem Home? Home. Have I forgotten it? Wild conch shell dialect. Black apostrophe curled tight on my tongue. Or how the Spanish built walls of broken glass to keep me out. But the doctor bird kept chasing and raking me in. This place is your place, wreathed in red sargassum, ancient driftwood nursed on the pensive sea, the ramshackle altar I visited often, packed full with fish skull, bright with lignum vitae plumes. Father, I have asked so many miracles of it, to be patient and forgiving, to be remade for you in some small wonder. And what a joy to still believe in anything. My diction now as straight as my hair, that stranger we've long stopped searching for. But if somehow our half-sunken hearts could answer, I would cup my mouth in warm bowls over the earth and kiss the wet dirt of home. Taste bogue mud and one long orange peel for skin. 
I'd open my ear for sugar cane and long stalks of gungle peas to climb in. I'd swim the sea, still lapsing in its soldered frame, the sea that again and again calls out my name. We've been listening to Sophia Sinclair read from her collection, Cannibal. Uh, and for people who are listening, she didn't look at the poem at all when she was reading, which is really amazing. And it makes me, it prompts me to ask you this question. Um, the process of writing the poem, how much of it is, is do you use oration or, se- or oration by yourself as, as, as figuring out how, how the poem should sound? Um, that's a large percentage of how my poems come together. Mm. Um, as I'm composing, I'm, I'm speaking the words out loud. Um, you know, poetry itself, I think, has to be incantatory in some way. Um, and I always think my neighbors, if I have a neighbor upstairs, I'm like, they must think I'm crazy. <laughs> but, I, you know, I read the lines over and over and I sort of hear where the 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 words have energy, where the music is gathering and where I need to do some more work. Mm-hmm. Another entry point into cannibal seems to be this the issue of exile not mm-hmm. just the exile because you're speaking the language of the colonizer though that for sure but also an exile from geographic home but even an exile within your home mm-hmm. um, and i'd like to unpack all of this with you but i'd like to first start with your first extended experience in the united states yes you hadn't spent a lot of time in america before you no. came became to study at bennington um, and you ended up in two schools, um, Bennington College and the University of Virginia, Charlottesville, that were very um, hyper-white spaces, uh, and your first experiences of, of America. So let's start with Bennington. You, you, you said that you learned that you wanted to be a poet who interrogated the imperial history of the English language and the continued erasure of the black experience. But I suspect you didn't learn this through a class that was called Black Erasure in the English Canon. <laughs> if only. <laughs> uh, so, t- tell us, tell us a little bit that about. That would be so great. Yeah, tell us how, t- tell us what happened for you. Right. And, um, and how this desire arose from what happened. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting that I I continue to find myself in very white spaces in the academy, but. Um, yeah, I didn't know what to expect when I went to Bennington. I got there and I was like, okay, I am one of maybe four students of color in the entire school. Um, and a couple years ago, I was thinking about my um, coursework and I realized that in my four years at Bennington, I read one black writer. And it was a short story, a one page short story by Jamaica Kincaid called Girl. So a large part of my education into black writers and particularly black American writers was something that I had to do. It's a self-education. But when I got to Bennington, um, this was something that I had to contend with for the first time um, where, where I felt like, oh, you know, if I spoke my mind, I was then put in this um margin of oh like you're just you're just upset for no reason or you're just angry for no reason um and I was like oh this is interesting this is a new 
there's this is a new hurdle to contend with. And I, you know, I where I talked about where I discovered what I wanted to do as a poet was in a class at Bennington. Um, we were doing a senior thesis project and I was writing about I was writing short stories about Jamaica and I'd use Patois, Jamaican dialect. And one of the one of the girls in the class, a white girl, she gave me back my pages from workshop and she had like all the dialects crossed out and all the um, like references to um, Jamaican culture, flora, like whatever was strange to her. She had like had question marks or crossed them out and said, can you say it in English or can you redefine this, etc. Mm. And it sent me over the edge. Right. So it's just like. No, I sat down and I wrote a, a manifesto. Like that's what I, I call it—a literary manifesto. And I came back the next week. Um, I quoted Caliban. I and I said, you know, my my language is not going to be colonized or cauterized. And um, from this point forward, like this is, I'm going to define what. I want to speak about and what I find are the important experiences. Hmm. And you've, you've said that that was poorly received. Oh uh, yes. Can, can you tell us what that means? Like how did that affect your experience post manifesto at the school? That you, <laughs> you'd sort of thrown down the gauntlet in class with your yeah. peers and your teacher. But you see, I always just think, well, I'm just telling the truth. I didn't, I didn't expect everyone to get upset, but you know, I said something to the effect of, um, you know, I'm not, I'm going to be honest, I'm not writing for you, right? And can you imagine that somebody could be writing something that's not for you, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I said... Um, it seems simple on the right. one hand, but extremely probably um, shocking to mm-hmm. these, these the audience to this manifesto at the I same time. Know. And I And, I, you know, I said something like, um, what can a what can a, a table of corn-fed strangers tell me about my work, speaking about the Caribbean? <laughs> Which, you know, that was, you know, prodding a little bit, but, you know, everyone was just so upset. <laughs> One person threw the pages across the room, across the table to me. I was just like, wow, this is very, this is, I didn't expect these white liberals to get quite so upset. But I don't know if they went home and interrogated why they were so upset. I I was the one who went home and I was still upset about someone telling me that what I'd written needed to be translated for um, an American audience or a white audience or this Western hegemony of this is our culture and everyone in the world is supposed to know our references. But if you do it, it's exotic and what's interesting about that, too, is that even in that scenario, when you read The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot, you're having to look up all those all references. The, all the no- so, footnotes, right. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not like even in the canon, the expect it, the expectation to look outside for the references is, is accepted if it is a white European or American writer, right. I think. This, this might be a good time to read uh, <laughs> The Art of Unselfing. The Art of Unselfing. The mind's black kettle hisses its wild exigencies at every turn, the hour before the coffee and the hour after. 
pen scratch of the gone morning, woman a pitched hysteria watching the mad ant scramble, her small wants devouring, her binge and skin thrall, her old selves being shuffled off into labyrinths, this birdless sky a longing. Her moth-mouth rabble on facing these touch-and-go months on the winter, torn letters on the floorboards, each fickle moon pecked through with doubt. And one spoiled onion, pale cyclops on her kitchen counter, now sprouting green missives, some act of contrition, neighbor god's vacuum, a loud rule thrown down. Her mother now on the line saying, too much. This island is not a martyr. You tinker too much with each gaunt memory, your youth and its unweeding. Not everything blooms here a private history. Consider this immutable. Consider our galloping sun, its life, your starved homesickness. The paper wasp kingdom you set fire to, watched for days until it burnt a city in you, until a family your hands could not save became the hurricane. How love is still unrooting you. And how to grow a new body, to let each word be the wild rain swallowed pure like an antidote. Her mother at the airport saying, don't come back. Love your landlocked city, money, buy a coat, and even exile can be glamorous. Some nights she calls across the deaf ocean to no one in particular, no answer. Her heart's double vault, a muted hydra, this hour a purge of its own unselfing. She must make a home of it. You've been listening to Sophia Sinclair read from her debut collection of poetry, Cannibal. The poem suggests, among other things, a, a, a finding of a home within non-home, within a non-belonging. Uh, and it makes me think of the Brathwaite assertion that a Caribbean person becomes a Caribbean person only when they actually leave the Caribbean, uh, that the desire or need to migrate is at the heart of the West Indian sensibility. And I was wondering what your thoughts were about his thoughts. I mean, I think that's true. I think a lot of Caribbean writers particularly feel that we don't have um, the same literary spaces in the Caribbean as you do elsewhere and most Caribbean writers only become heroes in the Caribbean after they've been lauded elsewhere Mm. Um, which is I think a sad thing and something that you know I know several organizations in Jamaica are trying to change that Um, but you know Jamaica is as uh, we were talking about before a developing country um and a lot of Jamaicans are already born looking beyond the horizon, thinking, well, the opportunities here for us are very limited. How can we make a better life? How can we go elsewhere? Um, 
And it's just trying to get those same opportunities um, to thrive. Um, and so it's, it's something that is part of the culture. It's part of something that you get accustomed to growing up. People talk about going to foreign you know, that's sort of what they call it. You go into foreign and it just means either America, Canada or Britain. Mm. It usually just means America. You went to foreign, you went to America, etc. Um, and so, you know, it's a true thing to think about this desire of wanting to leave. But then having actually left and then encountering what foreign is like um, makes you appreciate home more i think um and that's sort of a common thing that people say uh but it's true you know that it's sort of when you leave then you then you become homesick and and the things that um matter most to you become important what is it you miss right is it the smell of the ocean is it the smell of the ripe mangoes in the tree or the sound of the crickets at night um, things that you might have taken for granted or I might have taken for granted. And those are the things that were coming up in the poems. Right. You wrote Cannibal when you were at the University of Virginia, Charlottesville, uh, about your experiences of racism in Charlottesville, or at least your experiences of racism in Charlottesville, and by extension, racism in the American enterprise at large. They do enter your your poems. And obviously, in the last month, the public perception of the city has radically changed. Um, but prior to the white supremacist march, Charlottesville was often looked to as a progressive enclave in, in Virginia. And even people after the march, uh, elected officials in Charlottesville, put themselves forth as a progressive city that, that um, had unwelcome visitors. And yet your collection suggests that this reputation is, isn't entirely earned. Um, and I, it reminded me of a recent New Yorker article that also explores mm -hmm. this, uh, this denial, perhaps, mm -hmm. not just in Charlottesville, but, you know, we were talking before the show, like, say, in Portland, which is also a, a, a particularly white space. Um, it feels like a place that prides itself in progressivism and is also in, in a little bit in, or a lot in denial of, of the ways in which mm -hmm. they're, they're perpetuating racism. So here's what the New Yorker said. It's a running gag in Charlottesville how frequently the town is picked as the happiest place to live in America. It's a community that manages to embody the honeyed ease of a small southern enclave while modeling the progressive values and professional advancement of a liberal city. The idea is that there's sophistication and dignity in Charlottesville, good food, tasteful living, and sun-dappled long afternoons, and there is. But as certain reactions to recent events from white friends and politicians have reminded me, an air of enlightened blamelessness is often is more often concealment than it is proof. And I, I was hoping maybe you could, you since some some of these poems are very directly Virginia rooted. Yes. Um, tell us about doing your MFA a little bit in Charlottesville sure. and what the campus life was like and how this ended ended up becoming part of the art yeah um i didn't really i didn't know any of this about charlottesville that people considered it a liberal enclave or any of that i uh went because it was one of the best mfa programs and because rita dove called me and said 
you're in. And I said, okay, <laughs> when do I start? Um, It'd be hard to say no to her, I right? imagine. Right. So, um, but when I came to Charlottesville, I, I just imagined Virginia was the South and I imagined like tobacco plantations and, and this is like <laughs> what I imagined my history of Virginia. Um, but when I get when I got there, I was very surprised that that the white people who lived in Charlottesville were very adamant that they were not a part of the South. And I was like, okay, that's interesting because there's a statue of Robert E. Lee over there. And, you know, I had always thought this was strange. I'm just like, people just walking around. <laughs> we're just having a picnic at this park called Robert E. Lee Park. And there's Robert E. Lee. Hello. Like, is this okay? And, like, right across um, the same area where the, where the statue is, there is a, a little plaque on the ground. And it says, here was a slave auction block where slaves were sold and just this little gold plaque on the ground. And then they have this, um, another statue, this big statue of, uh, Lewis and Clark. And it says, you know, Lewis and Clark, the pioneers who discovered America or something to that effect. And then behind them, like crouched down in this like grotesque pose is Sacagawea. And this is like in the, the, the intersection of, of Char Charlottesville in the middle of the town. And I was always scrutinizing this like, well, I'm skeptical. Um, you know, I would talk to people from the business school at UVA and they without irony would talk about slavery as a business model. You know, I wouldn't see um, in the downtown mall, which is this idyllic area that people talk about when they talk about this happy enclave. I rarely saw black people walking around being free and happy and thriving. Um, you know, um, the black community was pushed out to the fringes by redlining decades before. Um, the area called Vinegar Hill was burnt down to become something else, and that's where the black population used to live, and they were pushed out. I saw most black people when I took the free trolley. Um, and so for me, Charlottesville was always a strange place to live. The neighbor at the end of the street I lived on had a Confederate flag and never said a word to me, even when I tried to wave or say hello. Um, so I was like, okay, this is where I am. This is this is the town of Thomas Jefferson. And how could I ignore that fact, right, with Monticello right on the hill? We live in the shadow of Monticello. Thomas Jefferson is so lauded at UVA. And I think it's interesting that the conversation has come to, well, we can't compare Thomas Jefferson to Robert E. Lee. Like, these white guys were, were worse than these other white guys, <laughs> right? Like, they were all bad. They yeah. were all bad. Um, we, you know, we talk about the rotunda in Charlottesville. It was built by slaves. We talk about, we don't talk about... Um, the, the, the areas in Monticello where slaves were supposed to stand to remain hidden from the guests of Thomas Jefferson. You know, the students refer to him without irony as TJ. Um, people still talk about a, a, like him, him and Sally Hemings like it was a love story. Yeah, she was 14 years old. That's what I read was the only acknowledge, even though the school was built by slaves and there are slave quarters underneath the dormitories. Yeah. 
the only acknowledgement, at least in the New Yorker article, of slavery was on Valentine's Day when you'd see T.J. Loves Sally as signs up on Valentine's Day on the campus. Right, and um, people using the slogan Virginia's for Lovers with Thomas Jefferson and, and Sally Hemings. And I'm just like, this is mm. not a romance. Like, this was abuse um, and rape and involving a 14-year-old slave. So, um, you know, it's a fraught history. And, I, and while I was there, it was very maddening to me that nobody really seemed to be talking about it. And maybe it's because I, I was an outsider. I'm not American that I, I was just very skeptical of um, this great American hero and this place that was supposed to be lauded. Can can you talk about the notes on the State of Virginia series in the books, sure. um, how those came to be, uh, and how that references Thomas Jefferson specifically? I So Thomas Jefferson wrote the text, Notes on the State of Virginia, and this is like another text that I thought, okay, what can I do with this? Is, is there some way that I can dismantle it or um, decolonize it or deconstruct it? Um, and so that's, what, that's where it came from. And the catalyst, I remember when I started writing the series, that there, uh, there was a frat house that spray painted on one of the bridges at UVA, we don't want any niggers here. And for me, that was a heart-stopping moment that I was just like, I'm living in this place. This is what's happening. We got one uh, just perfunctory email from the university, and then it was like it, it was like washed off the next day and never spoken of again. That was 2013 in Charlottesville. And that was a moment where I said, I want to go home. Hmm. I don't know if I can do this. And for me, the only way to make sense of it going from there was to write about it and to try to find some sense of self on the page or try to find some power in writing about it. And so I wrote, I began to write the series about my experience living in Charlottesville and taking on this idea of Thomas Jefferson as um, a heroic man. Could you read for us uh, notes on the state of Virginia number two? Sure. <clears throat> notes on the state of Virginia two. February, I am an open wound. Woman discarded and woman emerging. Scars devising scars. To live here, we know precisely how to be haunted. Sundown sun, a sterile sky come running, sweet gallo grass whistling ghosts. All year we learn that chainsaw hymnal. Outside the lawn, another excavation. Slave quarters found concealed in the student dorms. Buried rooms choked, sounds bricked off. Two centuries thorns may break sudden bloom. What can we say? No one speaks of it. I dream pristine. And skirting the caution tape instead, we clasp hands with each other in complicity. Somewhere, the ghost arm of history still throttling me. This taste of old blood on the wind, 
the crouched statue of Sacagawea shrouded behind the pioneers. Creature of unbelonging, on name a new silence. Magnolia explosion, its leviathan shade. Then fall, what sick messiah, fall, I am coughing in the aisles again, where bare triage of voices pour molasses in my ear, where a bald insurrection of tongues, then squashed rebellion, scrutiny, indoctrination. To live here, we know precisely how to be hunted. We've been listening to Sophia Sinclair read from Cannibal. Have you been back to do readings at either of these places? I, I'm curious, or and or, now that you don't live in Virginia or or Bennington College, and you've spoken out about both experiences and also made art about them, have any of the bad actors uh, <laughs> reached out? Um, in, um, in any way, I, I'm just curious if there's a way in which you've engaged those communities since this, or or that, yeah, that's a good question. Bad actors, you know, the thing about the audacity of whiteness is that I don't even think that some of these bad actors would recognize themselves in what had happened, mm -hmm. and that's like the stark truth that. Um, when black people experience microaggressions or straight up aggressions that often the aggressor goes home, sleeps, eats, goes about the day and never thinks of it again. Mm. Whereas for me, I think about it. It gnaws at me. Um, and so, you know, I don't know. The interesting thing was one of the bad actors from Bennington moved to Charlottesville. Oh, no. <laughs> the the girl who had crossed my pages I encountered her I, I encountered her in Charlottesville uh, and she was my waitress um, and so there was this uh, you know white liberal college or just out of college movement for some reason from Bennington to mm. Charlottesville wow. um, which sort of goes back to what we were talking about about how a place changes through who lives there and through a, a certain kind of gentrification or whatever. But I did, you know, re-encounter her. Um, but I, I don't, you know, I didn't bring it up. And I don't know if she recognizes herself there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think about it all the time. Similarly, there was somebody at Bennington who um, wanted to do for his senior thesis a minstrel show in blackface. And again, this person just wrote me and was like, hey, like nothing ever happened. Would you like to do a reading? Wow. Um, yeah. So <sighs> it's it's like it's very bizarre. But I haven't been back to Charlottesville since I moved, you know, but I have been back to Bennington. Mm. Um, and so I think that they are trying to be more diverse. I remember I, 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 when I returned there, they were like, it's more diverse now, right? And I'm like, well, you have 10 black students now instead of four. So wow, is that more diverse? Right. <laughs> Another thing that you discovered in Virginia that was woven into this collection is a book called 100 Amazing Facts About the Negro with Complete Proof. 
Uh, can you talk about that book and then the series that comes out of your experience of that book? Yeah, so I found this book while I was uh, in Charlottesville, and I was working on the my thesis, which turned out to be part of Cannibal. Um, and I thought, wow, this title alone is so strange. Um, and the book itself was like quite amazing, where you it was all these facts, some unconfirmed about. Um, Negroes in America and in the world. Um, and so I wanted to do a series based on that title um, and to sort of see how I could link that title to um, the systemic racism in America and these facts about America, about slavery. Um, that I was encountering in all the places I lived. All these spaces are spaces of violence. And it's hard for me to not feel that at my root. Um, and, and I think about that all the time when I'm writing poetry in the place that I'm living, which it affects me greatly. Hmm. So each, each of these poems mm -hmm. in this series has an epigraph from the author of the book, Except for one. Except for one. Which has an epigraph from James Baldwin. Yeah. Tell us the goat. Tell us a little bit about why you decide to disturb that um, that symmetry with the with the Baldwin. Um, well the, the 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 poem that has the Baldwin quote is the second poem in the series and um, the poem itself is is uh, it it sort of gallops forth from uh, thinking about the pseudoscientist who uh, his name's Samuel George, George Morton and he uh, was the one who devised measuring skulls as a way of somehow proving the supremacy of Caucasian people and but I wanted the poem to start um, to start with trauma but end with uh, empowerment and for me, the Baldwin quote just summed up everything that I wanted the poem to have as a foundation and to, to go from there. And I thought it was a good um, sort of being in the middle of the three poems, that that was a good place to have it. Well, let's, let's hear a couple of them, if you don't mind. Sure. I, I would love it if you'd read part one and part three. Okay. So this is 100 Amazing Facts About the Negro with Complete Proof, one. And this epigraph is taken from the book of the same name. In 1670, Virginia passed a law forbidding Negroes from buying white people. This was 51 years after the Negro had arrived in chains. Free Negroes bought white people in such numbers in Louisiana that the state made a similar law in 1818. Beware the African in its natural state. His thoughts, much wilder and darker than you can imagine, bisect in blood knots in the trigger of his ribcage. In the ripe season, his blood will burn hot. Each knot coils tight, a fist inside his body with rigid animal violence, dark braids of hair. 
Hope, an ache called taut in his throat, will strain to form a black bark of words. Do not attempt to understand the diction of a Negro. He wakes in strange tongues and speaks entirely with his body. The Negro scrawls the language of the birds, dreams of bold rivers and molten crowns, your blue field peopled with bucksaw and burr heads, your hedges raised with piccaninny, starved black-eyed Susans, dark heads teeming, remembering. Observe the teeth, astonishingly white, as they struggle to gesture beyond anger. The Negro will shatter before he is kind. Their women, too, like dark acanthus, bear an unusual stench, are known to perish without direct sunlight and menstruate together. Too loud and easily provoked, they hoard in congregations and spit from vast distances. All Negroes prefer to be near the water. If they sense rain, they will swarm, strip naked, hum, dive, demand to be reborn, march barefoot through your garden to devour your weeds, to spook and mark new airs with venom. 100 Amazing Facts About the Negro with Complete Proof 3 Two centuries ago, the Negroes of South Africa and the Northern Europeans both practiced a form of cannibalism that was strikingly similar. Woke ravenous, woke with a mollusk mind and swallowed all, you who skulked through the hull of me and glowering, Glorious dead I am inhabiting, sat fat in your feral sun, mouth wide and purred with wonder, hunger, small hands devouring. Such darling flesh invents the supple maw of me, moon wholesome and meager, what wet nurse, night's bivalve abandoned and unhousing you. Meanwhile, in carnage. Meanwhile, in silence. How all this year the mule season unbosoms me. My every throat a-goring. That barbarous root-starved, carnal, a plucked star. Sweet injury. Drink plum dark at the neck on historied. Avow its nakedness, your animal slaughter. Slow massacre, selves I am ingesting, what fodder, morsel we mean to say, wolf, bruise of unbecoming, imbibing stem and long tooth, wet seed case, the butcherous fruit, reap tongue, teeth, skull, genesis. We've been listening to Sophia Sinclair read from Cannibal. As, as I referenced before when we first started talking about exile, I, I think one might assume that your sense of exile began when you left Jamaica. But you did this great interview with the Rumpus that I think I would really encourage people to look at, uh, where you say that you began writing poetry when you were 10 because you already had a sense of exile. 
uh, one that you felt within your own body, uh, an exile that you felt at home and in your own country, and that this sense of exile is somehow linked to the the desire to make poems. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience in Jamaica sure. of exile, sure. uh, which I think people will find surprising given what their uh, their uh, assumptions are based on the the community you come from. Right. Um, and, you know, I do talk a lot about exile. I'm actually writing my Ph.D. dissertation about that, sort of um, tapping into that. But but I do mean unbelonging and, and a sense of isolation. Um, and so I grew up in Jamaica, Rastafarian. I come from a strict Rastafarian family. My father's a strict Rastafarian. And um, so we were sort of the outcasts in Jamaican society, like Rastafarianism is actually a minor religious minority in Jamaica, um, persecuted in the early 1900s in Jamaica. Um, and so that continues today, that my siblings and I were the only Rastas in school. We were the only Rastas at the supermarket, um, the only Rastas at, you know, music practice. Um, so very early on, we knew that we were strange. We were strangers in our own homeland. Um, you know, we were teased. We were asked senseless questions about Rastafarianism. And because of that, we sort of kept to ourselves. And for me, I turned inward. Um, May I ask, um, out of ignorance, what, what were some of the things that would mark you as other, as a Rastafarian in sure, school? Sure, yeah. Um, so... I think the biggest marker is having dreadlocks. Um, so my siblings and I were the only children in school who had dreadlocks. Um, you know, my brother went to a high school where, you know, they'd accepted the first student with dreadlocks maybe two decades before, and that was like a huge scandal. Mm. Um, and they didn't want to choose my siblings and went to public school that they didn't want to choose them for head boy and head girl, which is sort of a, um, it's like a prefect. I don't know if you have that in the U S where you in high school, they choose a student to be sort of the spokesperson for their grade, mm -hmm. um, because they were Rastafarian. So they, they got like the vice prefect or the vice head, head girl, um, several jobs. My brother, who still has dreadlocks has been turned down for they've asked him can you cut your hair before you get hired and this is still you know 2016 2017 happening in jamaica um so that's sort of some of the markers you know a lot of rastas are also um, very pan-african and so they dress in um traditional african clothing and um you know, they have, there's no one set tenant, but um, when I was growing up, the women weren't allowed to wear pants, and so we had to wear long skirts and long dresses, etc. But at school, we wore uniforms like everybody else, so the, the main marker was the dreadlocks. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned also as part of the unbelonging was um, being a woman in a very strict patriarchal yeah. society. And, and was that strict patriarchal society... Jamaica at large, or was that particularly the Rastafarian society? Um, it's certainly both, but for me, it was Rastafarianism. So, you know, be, being 
a Rastafarian or, or growing up in a Rastafarian household made me an outsider in Jamaica. And then for me, being a woman in Rastafarianism also made me an outsider. Mm. So I never truly felt comfortable anywhere except in literature, in poetry, on the page. Um, Because, you know, yeah, Rastas do have this very strict um, patriarchal view of things where um, men had a certain position of power and women were basically supposed to be in the kitchen. And um, I I always question those power dynamics. And questioning was not very looked upon very fondly in Rastafarianism either. Um, so I was seen as very unruly and um, disrespectful, etc. Um, so yeah, you know, I I, I have I had a lot of struggles with the idea of Rastafarianism as a woman because I didn't feel like there was any place for me there. Hmm. They never considered a place for me. Well, speaking of of fathers and patriarchy, you you were once asked about your notion of audience as you write poems. And you said that sometimes you find yourself writing to God, but that you see God as a pathetic patriarchal figure that's disheveled and tattered. And it is this figure that I said that. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, that that, at that least, sounds right. That sounds right. Well at least that you you write to a God <laughs> yes. that you imagine this way. Not that God is this way necessarily, but that you said sometimes you imagine yeah. a God like this. Yeah. Um, can you talk a Don't little bit? Don't you? David? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I've ever imagined a, a God as I was writing a poem. Yeah. But, but I might try it. Yeah. <laughs> um you know, I I don't know why. It's just a, another sort of act of imagination, but it is you know, I talk about I talk about this a lot that the page is a place where I felt the first sense of belonging, and that's because I felt so muted and so silenced in so many different ways that um this was the only place where I felt where I could speak back. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm still just speaking back. Yeah to all these different patriarchal systems, which seems to me always rooted somehow in this idea of God. Um, and so I'm, I'm speaking back to that idea. Could you read for us um, Pokemania and sure. How to Be an Interesting Woman? Okay. I like these pics. These are, you know, you surprising me. Are they unusual pics? As far as what you end up reading? No, some of them I read regularly, you know, when I I give readings, and some I I haven't read at all. So I like that, keeping me on my toes. Good. Okay. Pokomania. Father unbending, father unbroken, father with the low-hanging belly, father I was cleaved from, pressed into, cast and remolded, father I was forged in the fire of yourself. Ripped my vein skin, one eyelid, father, my black tangle of hair and teeth. Born yellowed and wrinkled, father, your jackfruit, foster my overripe flesh. Father, your first daughter, now severed at the ankles, father, your black machete. I remember your slick smell, your sea dark, your rum froth, wailed and smeared my wet jelly across your cheek. 
Father, forgive my impossible demands. I conjure you in woven tam line of Judah. Father, your red, gold, and green. Father, a flag I am waving. Father, a flag I am burning. Father, skittering in on a boat of whale skeleton, his body wrapped in white like an Orthodox priest. Father, and his nest of acolyte women, his beard comber, his primrose, his dahlia, his Nagasaki blossom. Mother and I were none of them. Father washing me in eucalyptus and garlic and golden seal. Father in my exorcism. Father the harsh brine of my sea. Making sounds only the heart can feel. Father a burrowing insect, his small incision. No bleat but a warm gurgle. Daughter entering this world a host. Father your beach animal, your lamentations in the sand. Mother her red bones come knocking. Mother, her red bones come knocking at the floorboards. My mother knock knocking at his skull when he dreams. Scratching at your door, my dry rattle of Morse code. Father, let me in. With the mashmouth spirits who enter us, Father, the split fibula where the marrow must rust. Father, the soft drum in my ear. Daughter on weeding her familiar mischief. Mother jangling the rib cage. I am. Here. How to be an interesting woman, a polite guide for the poetess. Actually, pause. So this is this this is actually not the title of the poem. The press missed a word. Oh, really? Yes. So, how to be a more interesting woman? A polite guide for the poetess. Call me Mary. Call me Sophie. Call me what you like. I'll answer to any man who looks at me right. You may come to my garden and steal hydrangeas in the night. I'll suck your thumb and play dumb. I'll pretend I can make anything grow. Rose bushes and violets and bruises for show. I'll open my hot mouth for an orchid to snake out. I've been practicing this bee sting pout. I will titter and fluster and faint. Write hundreds of sonnets in your name, each one born fat and sunny. Then I can claim to have made something happy. Light pools slick in my eyelids. I am all lashes and lips. I have learnt how to smile, how to talk with my hips, how to swallow my words, how to make myself small. I won't make a fuss. I will coo. I will crawl. And if you knock right, the spine will give out. I will crumble and weed and paw at your feet. On braid and emote, walk faceless from the brink. If you spit, I will drink. I will grow heavy and silent and sick. I will strip you right down to the bone. I will take your name. I will take your home and wake dark with a song on which you finally choke. My black hair furring thick in the gawk of your throat. Been listening to Sophia Sinclair read from Cannibal. Um, one of the ways in which I feel like the stereotypes of blackness and the stereotypes around women sort of intersect in this book is how they both get 
um, laid across this idea of nature and wildness. Mm -hmm. So the, how the black body and the female body would be closer to, to wildness and to nature. You, you've said in one interview that you were fascinated with Goethe's search for the primal plant. Yes. And that out of this grew a notion for you of the black woman's body as the elusive primal plant. And I was, I was just interested to hear a little bit more about that. I don't know anything about his, yeah. his idea of the primal plant. Um, yeah, so I was taking this class uh, at USC, PhD class, about, uh, it was called Literature and Science. And I was like, oh, this sounds fun. And then it ended up being like all Victorian literature. And W.B. Du Bois' Souls of Black Folk was like the one. It was like the token black texts. And I was just like, I'm so done with this. I then decided I'm going to, every every class I take, every every dead white man text that comes across my desk, I'm going to make something out of it. I'm going to grow something out of this. So in that class, I read um, about Goethe, who was very interested in botany and interested in, he did a lot of drawings of flowers and cross sections, etc. And he was obsessed with this idea that there was a primal plant, the, the first plant from which all other plants came. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. I think I can do something. I can grow something out of this. Um, you know, that it's, as, as a metaphorical idea, is very interesting to me. Um, but I think a lot about this intersection that you mentioned of blackness and womanhood, right? That um, coming back to this idea of exile, I think it's like um, living in a, a place of isolation, right? This sense of, um, you know, Du Bois talks about a double consciousness. This is like a triple conscious. I mean, it's... Um, a place where you're often asked to choose between your race or your gender, or your and you're on the margins of either side of your race and your gender. And so for me, that is the original site of exile, this body. And this this um, enterprise of yours of every time you're put before a dead white writer or scientist, and you're turning it around again brings us back to Caliban. Yeah, and he's, I'm taking it. He's <laughs> being taught English so he can curse back. Yes. Yeah, that's great. And, and I want to read a, a quote about language that, that you said. And part of it you've already said here on, uh, on the show. But um, for me, the English language is always going to be the language of the colonists, the language of oppression. So as a poet writing in English, I'm always in some way a stranger to myself. I wanted to explore the nature of this linguistic exile by breaking the language and the structure of the poem in different ways, by forcing the grammar and syntax beyond what is correct. And I was just hoping maybe you could orient our listeners to some of the ways you break language, um, ways in which you're um, looking to take the correct, the correct in, quote, in scare quotes, um, poetic form and, and breaking it. Um, it, I mean, it's something I'm interested in, in doing. I don't know if I'm doing it as well as I'd like, that I'm still under these strictures of English, but I like to, um, when I read the poems out loud, that I find that there is um, breath in it, but also it makes me, that there's breathlessness in reading it. 
And um, I'm always trying to find ways of using Jamaican vernacular patois or um, pronouncing words the way that... So, you know, I just read Pocomania, and in that line I say, Father, your black machete. In Jamaica, we call it a machete, not a machete. And so the, um, the meter of that line was written for the Jamaican pronunciation of machete. Machete would not work in the reading of that line. Um, and so uh, that's just one place where I'm trying mm. to find... Um, and the reference in the title is, is one that most right, Americans Right, so Jamaican folk religion. Um, yeah. And um, I'm also trying to play with, with space on the page and where I take those pauses and breaks. And um, those are just some of the ways. But I think going forward, I'm still thinking of how... What what can I do to grow myself out of this English language? Well, we can't not talk about the cover. Okay. Uh, <laughs> which is one of the most arresting and unnerving covers uh, I like th- that, that I've ever, ever encountered, actually. So I'm hoping you'd talk about uh, Wangechu Mutu. Wangechu Mutu. Um, mm-hmm. How you chose this as a cover and what conversation you feel like the cover is having with the poems. Um, yeah, so Wangechi Mutu is this amazing Kenyan artist. Um, her work, and, and it's a, a lot of it is collage work, is incredible. Um, and I first came across her um, when I, uh, this poet who I really adore called Kathy Park Hong, she wrote a commendation for my poems in the Boston Review, and she said, um, my poems remind her of Wangechi Mutu's collages, and I like went and and looked at Mutu's work and I said, yes, like she's speaking my language Um, because her work is very concerned too with um, the black female body, with the fertile landscape of that body of finding the margins of madness and wildness in the body and sort of subverting that. And so when I saw this image, I said, this is it. This has to be it. and I wasn't sure if the publishers were going to go for it. Um, and you wrote an essay to I argue did. for it. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Are you seeing a theme here? <laughs> I think I can write my way out of anything. So, I, yeah, I did. I, I felt very strongly. And, you know, they agreed. And I got the cover. Um, and I, I think that it so perfectly goes with the multiple ideas that I was trying to bring forth in Cannibal, talking about um, blackness, talking about uh, grotesquerie, talking about the female body. And by putting it on the cover, like that, that sense of unnerving and discomfort that you might feel looking at the cover is deliberate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted that, to be at the forefront to say, are you going to look away, you know? Um, And here is this shamanic third eye, which is, you know, the female genitalia part of the body that, um, you know, is a place of power, but also a place of so much violence. Yeah, that's where the discomfort comes for me. It's not the placement 
of the female genitalia as the third eye. It's the the medical device. Yes. Which I, you have no way to really like know the context of why it's there. Right. So it's uh, that's the part where I feel like, how am I supposed to read this? Yes. Yeah. Um, right, and it's going back to this also this uh, dissecting of the body and the scrutinizing of um, the black body and the black female body as other. Could you read for us Chimera? Sure. Chimera. Margaret, your phantom limbs ache and marrow at my root, where we once twined low in our dim husk of coconut, skirting the toxic drain of milk, blubbering and hinged at the shattered cliff of pelvis, reaching for the light. Two flies drowned in the ink of absinthe, we slowly ruptured at the liver, severed where the hasty doctor wired her copper hook between us. You were a fish caught in the clasp of oxygen. Your fragile lungs could not deliver you. I clambered awake, sputtering in the night, the worn breath of fingers against my throat, imagining your plasma circling the basin, flushed away among the day's last awful, racking my body in black contrition, wondering why I survived. Mother, when she speaks of you, does not call you by a name. She has already abandoned your crippled stamen, plowing its helpless grief at the heart. But I was born anemic and only half a self, purpling and diaphanous at the wound, salvaged unwillingly from this divergent sacrifice, still clinging to your absent warmth. Sometimes I imagine nothing has changed. You rib and I claw. Sailing the earth in our rye husk, both preserved as one taxidermic enigma, are coiled thick in a jar of amnion in mother's old cupboard, dreaming the same dream in the dark. I've been listening to Sophia Sinclair read from Cannibal. I read that you came, when you came across Anne Carson's autobiography of Red, it mm-hmm. was an early inspiration for both breaking form and building of myth. Yes. And, and since myth is such, and myth and mythical transformation yeah. feels really big for you. Can you talk about some of your other poetry inspirations or either touchstone books or, or touchstone poets that are, that you place yourself in the family tree of? The family tree. Um, I love Audre Lorde, uh, Sylvia Plath, um, Federico Garcia Lorca, um, Marquez as well, Kafka. Um, I also love a lot of artists that I'm very inspired by them. Um, Frida Kahlo, for example, is a big influence for me. Um, Mutu, as I'd said, um, Lucille Clifton, James Baldwin. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what your writing and your doctoral thesis? Like what What is the topic of it, and is that the next thing that we would expect from you? Um, you, yeah, I, I don't know if it's the next thing, because I'm also working on a memoir about growing up Rastafarian in Jamaica. Um, so that might be the next thing, but uh, I'm not sure. I'm still trying to figure out what to do with 
like an, a critical dissertation, right? Um, I'm trying to make it make it good, make it readable and not cobwebby. Yeah. Um, well, what's the what are the critical questions you're asking? Well, I'm you know I'm I'm concerned with a lot of the things that we talked about here. I'm I'm thinking about um, the language of dialect of patois of uh, Pokomania or as we call it in Jamaica Kumina as um, a, a, a way of rebelling against this isolation, this exile of speaking and writing in English and the trauma of um, being part of the African diaspora. And that language that we speak, that incantation, the oral storytelling, as, um, which is often seen as madness, which is often seen as savage, um, using that visionary language as a way of building ourselves a home. And home being a place where we can thrive and live and and be fully ourselves um, against the fractures of this post-colonial identity that we've inherited. Well, let's end the... Does that make sense? That does. I can't wait. Okay. I hope that comes out. You would out. pass me. <laughs> I would pass you, and it doesn't sound at all cobwebby. Good. Great. Um, well, let's let's end the, the conversation today with one more poem. Sure. With the Crania Americana. Okay. Which I think ends the collection yeah, as well. Yeah, that's the last poem. Crania Americana. And this is an epigraph from the pseudoscientist Samuel George Morton. The Caucasian skull is large and oval with well-proportioned features. The nasal bones are arched, the chin full, the teeth vertical. This race is distinguished for the faculty with which it attains the highest intellectual endowments. Lucis nature, noun, rare, a freak of nature. Black body burns itself to bushfire, spurned husk that I am, skinned viscous daughter in fever, grief knifes its slow lava through my fluorescent, gnarled as if a neon viper, as if singed animus. Gas lamp hot for necking, lit ocean liners gulped in. Such is our ambush. Spore of my peculiar, even the sea derails full throttle at every turn. What scurvy thrush unmoors this boiled microbial, a spite besots my humid mouth. Storm, hagseed, and holy. Come dusk, a rum bottle sky I am sipping, my preening tongue the guillotine. No, nothing here will grow politely. Such is our nature. Such lurid rains sedate us villainous low. This eel eye screws to dazzling fright what slowly turns to vapor, and another hot light spoils me for grotesquerie. Sibling, Sisyphean, howl of my unusual. Now we have reclassified the very ape of us, half fish and half monstrous. Drowned spine of toothache take us and barnacled, all crippled filaments, all jawbone. Already plucked of cruder blooms, brined hippocampus unzipped with germ. My dropseed and unteachable. Lo, this indigene, hissing into madness, this infrared, 
all night or dark carousel or dark carousel haphazards churning to house our many jargon mass congenital and cloven in diagram and moon calfed even i how sometime i am wound with solitude enough a negress all myself Scorn, one gollywog bone knots the black mock of me, naked and denouncing us, artless. Vexed skin folk on fossiled hence, what a brittled world is man. Self-inflammable, I abjure you. And wear your gabble like a diadem, this flecked crown of dictions, this bioluminescence. Predator coiled eager at the edge of these maps. Master, dare I unjungle it? Thanks so much for being on the show today, Sophia. Thank you for having me. We're talking today to Sophia Sinclair, the author of the poetry collection Cannibal. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.